3: The U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome to all of us. The U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. My name is Seth Vertelny and joining me is Amy Ruskay, Goal's women's football correspondent. Amy, great to have you. Are you ready for the Olympics?
1: Yes, a year later, but
2: I'm still excited all the same. Absolutely. Alongside us also, somebody who has two more Olympic gold medals and one more world cup than the two of us combined amy somebody who was also quite good at keeping soccer balls out of the net during her day it is former u.s women's national team goalkeeper hope solo hope great to have you are you ready for the olympics
0: thanks for having me and yes it's about time
2: yes a year later we're finally doing it today on our show we are going to do an olympic preview the u.s women's national team why they're such heavy favorites why they're so good do they have any weaknesses? After that, we are going to get into the U.S.'s group. We've got Sweden, Australia, and New Zealand who are looking to challenge them in the group phase. And then finally, we're going to talk about the other two groups, whether any other team outside of the U.S.'s group can challenge them. So let's get into it. The team we're going to talk the most about is the clear favorite for the gold medal, the U.S. Women's National Team. They are Heavy favorites uh, for many reasons, which we will dive into. But first, 44 games unbeaten. They have not lost a game since January of 2019. Of course, there was that whole pandemic thing in the middle, so that stat isn't quite as impressive as it seems, but still fairly impressive nonetheless. And Vlako Andonovski, after taking over for Jill Ellis, has won 22 of his 23 games in charge. That one game he didn't win was a draw against Sweden, which we'll get into a little bit later. But that's the best start any U.S. women's national team coach has ever had. Hope, let's start with you. Why is this team so good? You look at the
0: players. I mean, spectacular players all across the board. I don't see one weakness on this side. They shouldn't lose. They absolutely should not lose because of the talent on the field. Now, the coach and everybody I know, everybody I've spoken to, players and coaches alike, have a lot of respect for Black Coat. But I think it's very important to keep in mind this is his first international tournament. So what I have seen in my experience is it's not always about the coach. The coach, the manager can bring those details. They can help teams win, absolutely. But I have also seen teams win without the organization skills of certain managers. So I'm really curious to see how Black is going to do in his first international tournament. I have heard and I've seen a little bit of the uh, of the nerves, um, a little bit of a lack of organization going in to Japan. And I've seen it with every single coach I've ever played for before every major tournament. We have to remember managers and coaches, they get nervous too. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that they care as well.
2: Right. And we do have to remember, vlaco has been in charge for a long time. And he thought that his first major tournament was going to come like nine months after he was hired. But instead. Now we're at almost two years after he was hired. So uh, you did mention that this team doesn't have many weaknesses. I still want to try to come up with some, though. There have to be something that other teams can look at and say, okay, this is is how we're going to get at this team. This is how we could potentially win or get a result against a team that hasn't lost in two and a half years. So what could teams look at and say, all right, this is a way that we can exploit this team?
0: Player for player, I don't see any weaknesses. I don't see a lot of holes in the defense. However, they have not been challenged defensively in a very long time. I think the last real uh, challenging game probably happens in the She Believes Cup. But other than that, I I can't wait to see how they defend as a team. Are they going to continue to press? Are they going to play high? Are they going to drop too low? A lot of major tournaments, you see defenses start to drop back too far. So I I hope that Blacko has been through that with players. I know Becky Sauerbrunn is as spectacular as she is. She has a tendency early on in the tournaments to, to start her line very, very deep, which gives teams like Japan a lot of space to play in front and it allows for outside shots. But again, those are minor issues that I expect to see get better and better throughout the tournament. I'm trying to think of weaknesses. I mean, they are fit. They are ready. They have player for player, the best of any team going into the Olympics. You know, the weakness I see is the inexperienced coach. But again, everybody has high praise for Blacko. So the weaknesses that I can find are very minuscule.
2: If you're an opposing team and you're looking at the U.S., I think the one thing that you do have to look at is Julie Ertz. And you have to basically pray that her knee is not going to be 100% by the time the tournament starts or by the time the U.S. gets into the knockout stage because she really is kind of the glue that holds everything together in that number six role. There isn't anybody on the roster who can quite do what, what she does. When, when Vlako named this squad, there were two major injury question marks. There was Tobin Heath and there was Julie Ertz. I was among those people who questioned whether Tobin Heath uh, should have been named to the squad. She hadn't played since December. You know, we remember five years ago, Megan Rapinoe was taken to the Olympics after she was coming back from an injury and didn't really work out very well. But Tobin took 52 seconds to prove me and a lot of people wrong when she came on against Mexico and scored an amazing goal from 30 yards out. Um, so it looks like Tobin's okay. But Julie Ertz, that's that's a that's a real question mark. Because there, there is not another player that can, that can exactly replicate what she's going to do. It looks like Flacco's going to start out with, with Lindsey Haran in that sixth role if, if Julie Ertz isn't ready. What does that do to the team if Haran's there in, instead of Ertz? Well,
0: first, I, I believe Julie Ertz will be ready in due time. you got to remember there are a lot of games. It's a long tournament. I think she's slowly getting fit, and she'll be ready to play. She's versatile. She brings uh, a different sense of physicality to the midfield. Um, But in terms of a passing player, purely reading the game on the offensive side, I think Lindsay Horan is incredible for the United States in the midfield. You put her with Roosevelt, and Sam Mewis has been really stepping in to solidify that midfield. So yes, Julie Ertz is so important to the USA team as a number six, but also she's versatile to drop back as a as a central defender. So she can do so much for this team, and I think... When they need her the most, I think she will be fit and ready. But in the meantime, the midfield is locked in with Sam Mewis, with Roosevelt, and with Lindsay Horan in a, in a completely different way in the passing ability and seeing the game and longer passes from Lindsay Horan. And she, she brings a, a sense of physicality as well.
1: Not quite like Julie Ertz, but she's going to hold down the fort, fort in the midfield. I have no doubt. It's quite interesting because going back to what you said, Hope, about they've not really been tested. We've all been looking at these U.S. games where, like, right, okay, who's going to come in for Ertz? Who's going to come in? And me and Seth were talking the other day about Haran when she played against Mexico in the second friendly, and she's, you know, probably going to play in that, you know, that role that Ertz would play in. And she was playing as a nine, and she scored a goal within five minutes, and then suddenly came back in into this holding role. So it feels like the the player that steps in for Ertz at the beginning of the tournament, they're actually. Going to be tested properly for the first time in that position at the Olympics, and I mean the experience and the quality we've all just talked about. You know, they more than likely they will cope absolutely fine. But I do think it's going to be quite interesting to to see how that sort of unfolds. I
0: completely agree, and I think the most important thing is when you when I keep talking about that physicality in the midfield. It is one thing when you look at managers who like to play against the United States. A lot of them want to get physical with us because we want to get the ball on the ground. We want to connect passes. We don't want to anything to break the rhythm and the flow of our game. So Lindsay Horan, yes, she can be physical, but she can also get really frustrated with physical play. Julie Ertz, she is begging for that physical play. And I think that's also what brings like so much excitement in the defense. I mean, she fires everybody up and she goes in hard for the tackle and she comes in slide tackling. She covers back defensively. She's kind of that heart and soul of the team. Absolutely, they will miss that because she fires everybody up. And you're right, Lindsay Horan and the rest of the midfield will be tested early on. And I, I can't wait to
2: see how they respond. Yeah, somebody else who's who's not often tested, Alyssa Nair, you know, in some of these friendlies, she just kind of sits back there and, and just like all three of us, just watches the game. I'm wondering, Hope, we've seen Nair really grow into this role as the team starter. Of course, she kind of made her reputation in, in the 2019 world cup with that penalty save in the semifinals against England, but she does occasionally show the propensity to make some mistakes. So I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, you've seen Alyssa kind of grow. She was your backup. How have you seen Alyssa's development over, over the years and, and into the player that she is now?
0: Well, I will correct you. She doesn't just sit back there and watch like the rest of us. here. You, She may never touch the ball, but I guarantee you she'll walk off the pitch mentally exhausted. What I want to see more from Alyssa, Alyssa has all the capabilities. Um, she's athletic. She's tall. She has power. She can make the game winning stops like a lot of American goalkeepers. They can make the big game winning stops. But it's about doing the little things right and it's about staying mentally focused the entire time. Now that is the most difficult thing to do in all of goalkeeping. But when you look at all goalkeepers, men or women, everybody at the highest level makes mistakes. It almost is par for the course when it comes to our position. So you just have to minimize those mistakes by doing by being efficient, having good positioning, and staying mentally plugged in. What I want to see more from Alyssa is I keep waiting for her to like be that leader. And be that vocal leader, and have a little bit more edge to her and intensity. She's athletic, she's strong, she's consistent. But I I just want—I hope this is her breakout tournament. I want to see more of a personality from her.
2: There's another weird milestone that the U.S. is trying to to hit in this tournament. They want to become the first team to win the World Cup and then the Olympics the following year. Now it's two years later, but it's never happened, which is sort of strange because of how dominant the U.S. has been for so long. I mean, the U.S. does not win the World Cup in 2003. The next year, in 2004, they win the Olympic gold medal. 2007, they don't win the World Cup. The next year, 2008, they win the Olympic gold medal. 2011, they don't win the World Cup. The next year, 2012, they win the Olympic gold medal. Then, in 2015, they do win the World Cup. But in 2016, they do not win the Olympic gold medal. Do you think that this is, is it just a, a coincidence? Or, or or why has it been so hard for, for a team to just win both of these tournaments back to back? Well,
0: the way you went through it made my heart get really excited. <laughs> and then, yeah. thought, oh, shoot, we didn't look. Let me put it in simpler terms. The last World Cup before we won the World Cup in 2015, we hadn't won the World Cup since 1999. So you can't win back to back tournaments if you don't win more World Cups. You have to first win the World Cup. And then the Olympics. So if we hadn't won the World Cup for a decade and a half in 1999 and not again until 2015, that's only two opportunities to do so until the 2019 team won and now they have an opportunity to do it this Olympics. So there's really not a lot of opportunity. We can't forget that. We hadn't won the World Cup for 15 years. The second aspect to it is, of course, it's difficult to win back to back major tournaments. We were ill prepared in Rio in 2016 after coming off the 2015 World Cup for a number of different reasons, not just on the player side, but on the manager side as well. We were completely ill-prepared and we honestly didn't deserve to probably even medal. We didn't go into the tournament mentally the same way as we did for the 2015 World Cup. The other side of that is it shows how hard it is to win a World Cup. There are more teams. I believe the tournament is more intense The Olympics is more about your country, and it's the spectacle of this this major tournament with all sorts of sports. The World Cup is solely about soccer, and the intensity for that soccer tournament is huge. And it just shows how difficult it is to really win a World Cup, I think.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the spectacle of the Olympics, too, because this is going to be such a weird Olympics. So many people in Japan don't even want to have the the Olympics, but it's happening. It's going to be a weird COVID bubble and testing and protocols and isolation and just doing your sport and nothing else. I, I'm curious, Hope, like what your experiences have been like at the Olympics, kind of off the field, you know, mingling with at different athletes from different countries and different sports, doing sightseeing. These Olympics are going to be so different. And I would never suggest that something like that is going to affect the U.S. I know that they're way too professional and and way too focused, but I'm just curious how you think it's going to affect the athletes at these Olympics, just having this more isolated experience.
0: I think it's incredibly sad when, when you have the opportunity to be a part of something huge, like the Olympics, you want to experience it with, with family and friends and those who have made sacrifices to help you get to that point in your life and in your career it's not just your dream it's the dreams of your family members as well it's really really heartbreaking to be quite honest I also think there's a good side to it and a bad side to it the good side is when you're in the Olympic Village you're walking about two miles to get to the meal room where you can get something to eat you're exhausted it's heavy traffic you know you're on the bus for an hour and a half to get to the training sites now the team they're gonna be isolated in their own hotel there's no Olympic Village so you take away all of that kind of extra time that you're you're wasting walking to meals and sitting in traffic and you have more recovery time. But at the same time, what kept a lot of my teammates and I sane throughout a long tournament when you have three days in between games and you're sitting at the hotel forever is walking in your cute little European city to get a cappuccino with your mom or your grandma or somebody close to you because it is about having that balance. You take someone like Carly Boyd Who was so focused throughout her entire career 24 7 and she finally realized late in her career that she needed more balance in her life in the tournament she cannot sit in the hotel room for eight hours hydrating and elevating her legs she needs to get out so that she is fresh and refreshed for the game i think that's very important for athletes so i think there's a good side to it and i think there's obviously a, a horrible and sad and bad side to it
3: all of us the u.s women's soccer show from gold latest news and views on the u.s women's national team and the nwsl on goal all of us the u.s women's soccer show from goal find more u.s women's soccer news and opinion on goal
2: all right welcome back to all of us the u.s women's soccer show from goal And make sure that you hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you will never miss an episode of this show again So, the rest of the teams in the U.S.'s group, we have Sweden, we have Australia, we have New Zealand. Uh, it It was a difficult draw when you look at the other groups, for sure. We are going to start with Sweden. Five years ago, Sweden shockingly knocked the U.S. out of the Olympics in Rio. It was at the quarterfinal stage, so it was the first time that the U.S. failed to medal at an Olympics. Hope you were there, and of course... There was a little bit of controversy about some of your post-game comments um, after what you said about Sweden. You know, what are what are your recollections of that game and how everything kind of unfolded afterwards?
0: I'm not going to apologize for being a poor sport. I was pissed. I was hurt. You know, we're there to give it our all. Our team was ill-prepared. We, we, we didn't show up to play great soccer. Um, and Sweden, you know, I wanted to go one-on-one against best one of the best forwards in the world, Lotte Hullinne. I wanted to go up against her to see, to see her drop back into her 18-yard box. It was tough because when you're playing for your country at the Olympics, it's about leaving it all on the line. You're playing with your heart and with passion. And to see them drop back defensively, I was pissed. And so I ended up calling them cowards. But, um, you know, all was forgiven and we moved on. And I have great relationships with the Swedish national team and my friends in Sweden. Yeah,
2: so if you, if you had to go back, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it any differently?
0: Uh, I think you see male athletes all over the world be angry when they lose and make comments. Um, I think I definitely took a lot of heat, unnecessary heat for it. I made apologies to the people I needed to apologize for. And, you know, the media, they, they ran with it. But no, I, I can look at myself in the mirror. At least I cared about losing. I had many teammates who went to party in Rio and didn't really care that we lost the
2: Let's move forward five years into the future to present day Sweden is the only team that has not lost to the U.S. under Vlako Andonovski. They tied one-one in a friendly in April, and I, I have to say, the U.S. was pretty lucky to even get a draw to that game. They got a, a pretty fortunate late penalty. W- what is it about this Sweden side that, that that seems to present such a challenge to the to the U.S. every time they play?
0: They they kind of have everything in their bag. They're great on set pieces uh they have strong goalkeeping. I don't know what it is. It's almost like they got in our heads and they they gained some confidence in winning once and then they continued to do so. But no no disrespect to them. They're a great team with a lot of talent. But I I don't have an answer on why they continue to make it very difficult for the United States because as I said earlier, player for player, the United States should be winning every game.
1: Yeah. I have noted down here that like one big strength must be the sort of psychological strength. There there are certain players that that were in that team in 2016 that will have played in the in the friendly in April, but even going into the games this summer to know that you've nearly beat the u s and broke their winning
2: streak, that's going to be so big for them going into this tournament definitely and Amy, I wanted to ask you about one particular Swedish player, Hannah Benison uh she was the winner of goals next gen award for twenty twenty one as the best young player. In the world, so she's got a little bit of hype. She seems to have it all. Uh, she's on this Olympic roster. What is it that makes her so good? And and can U.S. fans expect to see her actually playing in in that game against them?
1: Well, I mean, she was in the original 18 um, before it got bumped up to 22. So I mean, that's that's big in itself. You know, there's there's a lot of really good young players at this tournament that were reserves and are now being bumped up. And you know, Benison was in there from the off. The manager Peter Gahardson seems to really like her. I mean, she made her she made a debut against the U.S. I don't know if you guys remember in that victory tour in late twenty nineteen, and um, she came off the bench and she nutmegged Lindsay Horan with like one of her first touches of international football as a seventeen year old. She's got confidence. She's got that little bit of flair, but she's very intelligent. Like you know, she'll keep the ball, and you know, she's not just. This young player that's like, right, OK, I want to do everything all at once. I'm going to try and med this player, then I'm going to play this ball through and score from 30 yards. She's calm and collected and, you know, she's adapted to the physical senior game very well because she's she's very good physically. I know she impressed at Rosengard with just how determined she was with her fitness and things like that. Like, I think we could see quite a bit of her. Like I say, she's in that 18 and I'm quite excited
2: to to see her on the world stage. First game for the U.S. might be the toughest one, and then the second game is Australia, um, and they will run into a very familiar face in Tony Gustafson. He was the assistant coach alongside Jill Ellis for many years, um, including all the way through the end of uh, Jill Ellis's tenure, always standing next to her with an earpiece in and always yelling instructions at the players. So uh, he's someone with a really good pedigree. It's also an interesting tournament for him because he's coaching against the U.S. as well as Sweden, his home country lots of conflicting emotions for tony in this tournament what can we expect from australia uh they're they're a team that has a a pretty good international pedigree they always seem to be there at these major tournaments but never quite break through worryingly for australia their best player one of the best strikers in the world sam kerr has yet to store a a score a goal uh since gussison's taken over so uh amy what, what what can we expect from this australia team it's a weird one because
1: I think if we were talking about what how they were going to do at this Olympics, if we were talking about this in April after those two those two games, the first games, I think it was five nil against the Netherlands and and five two against Germany, it wasn't looking good at all. And then they came back in June, and the thing that you have to look at as well for the April games, so because of the really strict quarantine around Australia, they had to pick players that were based in Europe. They gave out probably about five debuts in that first camp because. Do you know they were they were struggling to put a squad together. There was a couple of COVID cases as well, I think. So June was a lot more of a complete Australia. They look so much better defensively. It's just that missing attacking thing, which I think now that they have the the sort of platform to build on defensively, I think that will come. You can't go that long without Sam Kerr scoring a goal. It's it's just not a thing.
2: Yeah, I think we saw that at at, at Chelsea when uh, people were calling her a bus for a little bit and then she comes back and just starts scoring a goal every single game. Basically you you can't keep Sam Kerr down, as you said. Um, Hope, Tony Gustafson, what's, what's he like as a coach? Uh,
0: Very detail oriented. Um, Sometimes we wondered if he was our head coach, not the assistant coach. Uh, I, I say that in all jest because he, he likes to be in charge of the defense. He likes to be in charge of the set pieces. And and Jill, you know, she was a, a kind of relaxed coach who allowed him to be in charge quite a bit, but he's going to know the U.S. players inside and out. He's going to know what gets in the head of Alex. He's going to know how to take Carly down. He knows the team. But as I said, I think his strength is the details in his set pieces and in defense. He is a fantastic defensive coach and fantastic when it comes to set
1: pieces. I think there'll be a big threat for that World Cup in 23. Like, I really do. I think if it hasn't been for the pandemic, I, I was really excited when they appointed him, actually, because Australia have got so much talent. So I think once they get a proper run of games and like everybody's together, yeah,
2: I'm excited to see what they can do in, in a couple of years' time, definitely. From one former U.S. assistant to a former U.S. head coach in Tom Sermani and... New Zealand. This is a team that has just played their first game in 491 days. So uh, safe to say it's not ideal preparation for uh, a major international tournament. Hope, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your your recollections of uh, Tom Sermani, since we're talking about uh, coaches you've played under. What does he bring to the table? And and, and what do you think he can bring to this uh, New Zealand side in the Olympics?
0: Tom Sermani is probably my favorite human being in the world the most laid back, relaxed manager, coach that I've ever had. And that is all good and well when you have the right players, when you're coaching the United States and when they're all cutthroat and intense, it, it was a different vibe for us. And maybe we weren't ready for his vibe, but he does fit in somewhere because he has a lot of, he has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the game, but it's how he implements it. And I think we were such a cutthroat winning team at the time he took over that we wanted more out of practice. We wanted more intensity. But in the end, we knew his knowledge and we knew how intelligent he was in the game. And what I'm happy to see now is, you know, when his players didn't get released from the NWSL, I finally saw the best human being that I've ever known get
2: He was furious.
0: well as he should be. I mean, I side with with Tom um, with what happened being very unethical and possibly discriminatory. Actually, I do think it was discriminatory. So I do side with him, and I think that can fire them up. And I think that's a positive thing for for the New Zealand side because they have quality players, but they need a little extra. They need something to play for. And possibly if you piss them off and you piss Tom Sermani off, that might give them a little bit of edge going into group play.
2: Amy, I, I wanted to ask you about a, a New Zealand player who's actually not going to be on the field, but one who is uh, the inspirational figure for this team behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, it follows on nicely from what from what Hope was saying about when you give them something to play for, and New Zealand have two players that they have to play for. I mean, the first is uh, Rosie White, who plays for the Rain, who has you know been to so many World Cups and and Olympics, and she's missing through illness kind of a late one but then the other one is Rebecca Stott who has got to be one of the most popular players like she was here in England playing for Brighton for like I don't know four months or something and within about a month I remember talking to um, some of the Brighton players and they loved her like they absolutely loved her and such a popular figure and sadly in in March she was actually diagnosed with um, Hodgkin lymphoma which is a blood cancer so she's missing and she actually gets, um, she finds out on the day of their first game whether she's in complete remission. So I've spoken to some of the New Zealand players in the past couple of weeks and they're playing for her, they're playing for her and they're playing for Rosie White. So, you know, we've seen it over here in Europe with with Christian Eriksen, you know, the way that that kind of, spurred on denmark in the euros for the men and you know this is something that they can really play for and can inspire them to come out of what is going to be such a difficult group
3: all of us the u.s women's soccer show from goal find more u.s women's soccer news and opinion on goal all of us the u.s women's soccer show from goal latest news and views on the U S women's national team and the NWSL on goal.
2: Welcome back to all of us. The U S women's soccer show from goal. Don't forget to subscribe because we will have new episodes as long as the U S is at the Olympics. I want to speak about the other two groups, group E Canada, Japan team GB and Chile, as well as group F with China, Zambia, Brazil and Netherlands, eight teams, of the 12. will make it through to the quarterfinal stage, the top two teams, as well as the top two third-place finishers. So it's a very forgiving group stage. I want to talk about Group E first, Canada-Japan, Team GB, and Chile. Amy, as our resident Team GB expert, is going to have a lot of thoughts on that particular team. For U.S. fans who who might not have been paying attention, um, they might remember England as the team that gave them perhaps their biggest challenge at the last World Cup, uh, taking them all the way to the to the end at the, the semifinal round. And and the U.S. required a, a late penalty stop from Alyssa Nair in the semifinal to get through. Now, in addition to England, this team has Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales to choose from. So Amy, surely now they're just an incredible super team,
1: right? Well, I wish I could tell you, but we haven't seen them play, so I have no idea. Resident Team GB expert has no idea. Doesn't really
2: uh, live up to your billing there, Amy.
1: No, I mean, they played one game, um, and it was behind closed doors um, on Wednesday against New Zealand, who haven't played a game in nearly 500 days. So they did win 3-0, but how much you can read into that is you know, up to you, I guess. To, to kind of sum up for people that haven't followed what Team GB have been doing this year, a lot of people in the US will know that Phil Neville is now the the head coach of Inter Miami in MLS. Uh he was meant to lead Team G B this summer, although it hadn't yet been announced. Do you know, shortly before it was going to be announced, ended up leaving for MLS. And then Hegger was brought in to be his replacement as England's interim before Serena Wegman comes over from the Netherlands after after the Olympics. And she impressed so much in, in charge of the first game in March against Northern Ireland, a 6 0 win that they gave her the Team GB job as well. The only problem is, for Hagarisa, is that she hasn't been able to work with GB in the international windows because England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland all kind of go off and do their own thing. So while the US have been playing, you know, a friendly or free friendlies every month, the Team GB's only friendly before the games was cancelled on July the 1st. So it's been really strange as sort well as the prep. It's been very chaotic. They have had like a whole month in camp together so the hope is that you know that's really brought them together and as they've done a lot of learning in that time and apparently they were playing very well the other night against New Zealand but yeah it's really strange because like I say we're gonna have to see but the players they brought in that aren't English for those that don't know it's uh, Sophie Ingle from Wales who was part of the Chelsea team that won the league in the cup and reached Champions League final Caroline Weir, who plays for Manchester City, who is absolutely just top class, um, oozes class in midfield. And um, a player that I know that you really like, Hope, is uh, Kim Little. I'm very happy to be part of the Kim Little fan club with you. I mean, the greatest player you play with, I think it was, you said? Uh, One of the best teammates, greatest player up there with Jessica Schlack, honestly. There's some great players in there. Like I say, it's just going to be how they come together as a team under a new manager. And it's going to be basically wait and see what happens, I guess, in a way.
2: Yeah, so the other three teams, we have Chile. Their best player, actually, is their goalkeeper, Christian Endler, who uh, fans will remember turned in an incredible performance against the U.S. Uh, they could The U.S. could have won 8-9-0 in that game, and it was a pretty close score throughout. Also, we have Canada. We have Japan. Japan is, uh, is always going to be a threat at these international tournaments. Canada or Japan, do we think that either of them have the ability to, to win gold at this tournament?
1: Canada, I've been slightly disappointed when I've watched them. I mean, England played Canada in April and honestly it was absolutely dreadful actually the game. Like there was I don't think there was a single chance created in the game. And Canada won two nil from two defensive errors from England. So I do look at Canada's team and I think, wow, like on paper, you've got so much talent and then, you know, it just seems to be that sort of creative I mean they were missing Christine Sinclair to be fair for that game but I think they drew nil-nil with Brazil in June when she was back so it seems to be sort of putting all the pieces together for Canada and it just seems like we're waiting for that to to happen
2: so they can push on from bronze Japan this is a team we're always used to to seeing play really eye-catching soccer great style um, always a lot of players who are good on the ball what can they do at this tournament I mean, I think
1: I think the this group's really open because I think that like there's not like an obvious winner of the group. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I think that Japan Japan are full of confidence because they've been playing games against relatively low ranked teams recently, and then they beat Australia one 0 the other day. It was a bit stickier, just a penalty, but they're playing well and got some great players in that team. You know, you got Kuma in defence who's absolutely class, and Iwabuchi in midfield who is an absolute magician. So. I mean, if they can win the group, then you know, and have a, a nice path to getting all the way to that gold medal match, then anything can happen.
2: Yeah, and in Group F we have China, Zambia, Brazil, Netherlands. Got to start with Zambia. If you're looking for an underdog, the Olympics are all about underdog stories. You've got Zambia. They are ranked 104 in the world right now. Most of their players come from the uh, Zambian domestic league, which is a uh, semi-professional. It will be. It will be very interesting to see how they do in this group you've got china you've got netherlands and brazil probably on paper this is the weakest group although um we've seen netherlands and brazil and you know china more in the past uh do big things in international tournaments what are you looking for in this group what who's the best team and and, and who could potentially uh make a run to the gold medal game i think the netherlands look good
1: The woke up final two years ago they had a pretty decent game plan against the US, and you know, the the penalty doesn't happen. You know, you'd like to see what happens in that game. I think, yeah, they've got a lot of good players, and I mean, you don't really write off a team that's got Vivian medera up front. I don't think.
0: Yeah, this is an interesting group. You know, I, I want to see a, 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 a inspirational, feel good story from Zambia. I want to see them put together a great game and feel proud and good about themselves. I don't want to see an eleven zero game. I expect China to come out but you never know what to expect from China. They can be so organized and so talented. And then sometimes they just, they don't know how to put the ball in the back of the net often. So you never know what to expect from China. Brazil, you know, they can be hot and cold, but you know, they're going to put on some entertaining performances. They have, you know, the oldest player on the pitch in, in Formiga, who's seventh Olympics, he's 43 years old. That's insane. So surprised though that Cristiani didn't make the team. Obviously you have Marta. So it's, you know, you're going to see a lot of flair and a lot of entertainment from Brazil. But again, it's, you have no idea if they can take it the entire way. They have talent and they have ability, but they never seem to have a 90 minute focused game. And then Netherlands, I would have to agree with you, Amy. and They are, I think, the best team besides the United States, probably, in the tournament. And they have a great goalkeeper in Van Vienendal, who had a great tournament in 2019. I think they have the best manager in Wiedemann. And then Riki Martins and Medema. they have two of the best players in the tournament. So I would say Netherlands um, is, is probably the favorite behind the U.S.
2: Yeah, the U.S. Is, is definitely the favorite to win. And and one of the major reasons why is that two of probably the best yeah three or four teams in the world are actually not going to be in the Olympics. And that's that's France and Germany. The reason is they qualify through the last World Cup. And it's a, it's a weird quirk because the U.S. actually qualifies through an Olympic qualifying tournament through CONCACAF, whereas Europe does it a little differently. So you end up with this weird situation where the reason France isn't in the Olympics is is because they ended up having to play the U.S. in the World Cup quarterfinals, which doesn't seem entirely fair that a team from Europe would see their route to the Olympics blocked by a team from a different confederation. And, oh, yeah, it also happens to be the best team in the world.
1: I think the thing is in in Europe is that something like 50 countries or something that compete to qualify for the Euros and the World Cup. So the schedule in Europe is so packed. There are so many qualifiers all the time, constantly. So, like, for example, the CONCACAF tournament, you know, the equivalent of sort of the Gold Cup that the women have over there, the US and Canada qualify automatically, don't they? Whereas, like, England and Germany and France and the Netherlands and everybody has to actually physically qualify for the Euros. So it just packs a whole load of fixtures in. But, I mean, I'd still agree that, you know, there there has to be a better way to do it. I mean, I know there was a few years ago where, so it was a little easier for the World Cup last time because three of the four semi-finalists were Europeans. so it's like okay well those three qualify for the olympics but there was a, a situation a, f- a few years ago where there was quite a few that made it through to a certain stage and there wasn't three clear winners to go to the olympics so they had to play a little mini qualifying tournament with those teams i don't know if there's like a way that you can adapt it like that i don't know maybe like every european team that gets out of the groups at the world cup players in this olympic qualifying or something but it is a it is a very strange way to do things
0: i think it's a bunch of bs to be quite honest um you know when you look at the Concacaf tournament that is our, our qualifying tournament and when you look at what uefa does for the men i get that it's a lot of pictures i get that it's a lot of games but it's the only fair way to do it because there's no excuse for germany and france not to compete at the highest level of any international tournament it, it, it waters down the, the soccer tournament in itself, and I, I honestly I, I think it's inexcusable not to see France and Germany uh, ranked number two and number four as it stands right now, and we're not going to see some of the best women's football teams when, when we're displaying this tournament worldwide. I also think there's a problem when there's only 12 teams in the tournament, when the men's tournament, soccer tournament, has 16 teams, because it's not just about Germany and France. You have great teams that are missing out, like Spain, who did so well in the 2019 World Cup. Italy, you're missing out on teams like Nigeria. There is no excuse for us not to have four more teams representing Olympic soccer.
2: To our final question of the show, which is, who's the biggest threat to the U.S. in this tournament?
1: I think it's the Netherlands. The Netherlands. Or Sweden. Sweden.
2: I'm going to go Sweden too. I think they just, there's something about them uh, in recent history, even in, in more, more distant history. They just, they, they seem to, to, to really know how to play against this team. They have a great coach. They're well-organized and they're the only team that, that has managed to get a result off of Vlaka Manosky so far. So the U S is going to start out with their, uh, their biggest challenge and um, they might see them a little bit down the road. And that is going to do it for our first episode. Um, Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, On Twitter, you can find us at Goal. From U.S. soccer legend Hope Solo, Goal's Amy Ruskay and myself, Seth Bertelney. We will catch you next time after the Sweden game on All of Us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal.
3: All of Us, the U.S. Women's Soccer Show from Goal. latest news and views on the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL on Goal.